We're going to start with some poetry this morning by a guy who's probably what we would call a lesser-known poet. Um, Edward Roland Sill is not a name that probably most people here know. Um, Sill lived in the 1800s. He was 20 years old. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> As I perform my normal <clears throat> Sunday morning ritual and clear my throat. 20 years old uh, when he became a student at Yale when the Civil War started. Uh, he was a bright bulb, academically, no doubt. One of his fellow classmates at Yale said, this guy's a genius. After Yale, he started at Harvard at the Divinity School, but then left. He took up a writing assignment. I think it was a magazine nearby. And then shortly after that, he left. He headed west to California and back to the Midwest a little later. Uh, he became an educator and a writer the rest of his short 45-year uh, life. Uh, the reason I know Sill by name is because, among other things, he wrote two poems, two short poems, uh, one of which I'll read to you this morning. Uh, this one's called Opportunity. I may have read this or parts of this as an excerpt in the past. This is what Sill wrote. This I beheld or dreamed it in a dream. There spread a cloud of dust along a plain, and underneath the cloud or in it, raged a furious battle, and men yelled and swords shocked upon swords and shields. A prince's banner wavered, then staggered backward, hemmed by foes. A craven, we would today probably say a coward, hung along the battle's edge and thought, had I a sword of keener steel, that blue blade that the king's son bears, but this blunt thing, he snapped and flung it from his hand and lowering crept away and left the field. Then came the king's son, wounded, sore bestead, and weaponless, and saw the broken sword, hilt buried in the dry and trodden sand, and ran and snatched it, and with battle shout lifted afresh, he hewed his enemy down and saved a great cause that heroic day. This is the point that I hope to emphasize clearly this morning. It's this. This poem highlights as well, oftentimes in life, the quality of what we have to offer is less important than our determination to use what we've been given for a purpose greater than ourselves. Let me read that again. This is the key. Oftentimes in life, if you haven't found out, you will. The quality of what we have to offer is less important than our determination to use whatever it is we have in a cause greater than ourselves. And this is the bottom line for me, guys. It's this. I'm convinced that Christians, that means us in this room now, here, that many times in life, God presents us opportunities to invest in His cause and in His name. And we basically say, no thanks, and it goes something like this. I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not pretty enough, I don't have enough money, whatever, you can fill in the blank. We, there's some reason why we've decided we are not going to serve Christ or others or a cause greater than ourselves because we look at ourselves, our resources, our talents, etc., and we say, I'm not impressive enough, I'm not successful enough, whatever, and so we stay out of the fight. We become, basically, the coward along the battle's edge instead of the king's son. And I want to encourage us this morning to become the king's son instead of the coward.
Many of us, this room, we go from infants all the way up to, who knows, <laughs> to gray hair. So this, this varies, what I'm saying here varies depending on your age. But you know, most of us start out in life, and we go along, and we gain some sense of ourselves in the world, and we develop some expectation for our life. That is, we want to be successful And we kind of develop in our mind's eye what that might look like. We're going to be significant in in business or politics or we're going to become famous for something we do. Or maybe we just say in our corner of the world, I want to affect change. I want to have an impact. I want to be known. I want to be successful. I want to have significance. The desire for significance, this is human. Uh, All of us need to know we're loved, we're known as we are, and we're significant. There's not a problem with this. But oftentimes what happens is life keeps going on and the desire or the image we had in our mind of significance and success, we find that we're not reaching it. We're not as important as we wanted to be. We're not as talented as we hoped we would be. And so the kind of significance or the kind of success we hoped would come about, it doesn't. If you've seen uh, the movie Mary Poppins, one of my favorite scenes... Uh, after Jane and Michael Banks' father is sacked at the bank. You remember there's a run on the bank if you've seen the movie. He's a prestigious, upright British banker. And he loses his job. I mean, they embarrass him when they fire him. And so he comes home and he laments to the chimney sweep. And he says, a man has dreams of walking with giants to carve his niche in the edifice of time. Well, that's us. We want to be significant. We want to be successful. And in many ways, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just that life tends to beat us up over time. And we find out like the banker that that we're not going to get what we thought we were. Or we're not going to have the sphere of influence or the level of success that we might have hoped for. And so then the question becomes, what do I do with the life that I have? And what do I do with the resources and the talents that I have instead of the ones that I thought I would have, and now I found out I don't. I'm going to give you a little of my own biography here. Um, When I was in grade school, I loved school. I didn't need Ritalin. I loved school because I loved to read. And I still remember fondly the Dick and Jane books, you know, in first grade, second grade, third grade. I loved them. And all my life, I've loved to study. Uh, Our homeschool motto was Semper Discipula, always a student, always learning. There's always something new to learn. So in grade school, I was a quick student, and I loved to read, and so that's not a problem. My my grades were always great. My conduct marks were not always as high as my grades, but my grades were always solid. And then in high school, I never had to study. I got good grades. I was in the National Honor Society, all that stuff. I was smarter, smart enough, or smarter than most of the people around me. I went to college. I found out life's a little more challenging academically than I'd known it before. But then past that, I'm thinking the epitome to me of of the wake-up call for Mike was sitting in a a conference. It was a theological conference. And there's a philosopher there. He's a pretty pretty smart guy. And he's talking about um, it was real or absolute and theoretical time in Einsteinian, in Newtonian physics. And and I'm, I'm grasping. I'm trying to stay with him. And I'm, I'm lost. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, literally, does anyone in this room have any idea what he's talking about? And to my chagrin, when his 30-minute presentation's over and it's question and answer time, 
every hand in the place goes up, except mine. And all of a sudden I realize, you know, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Or I'm not as smart as I thought I was compared to other people I've hung around with in the past. But since then I've, com- I've concluded this. Whatever degree of academic aptitude I have, intellectual ability, God has given it to me, and I owe it to Him to use it in His service, even though it's not what I thought it was. Carrying the story on, I love to sing. But if you've stood next to me on church, you know, to your chagrin, that I don't sing well. Uh, Juan's not in here this morning, but my future son-in-law said, Hey, welcome. This is a Juan story. This is a Juan line anyway. We've listened to this guy sing. And Juan's comment on him is, He has great technique, but he doesn't have a pretty instrument. (laughs) And I have neither technique nor instrument. But I love to sing, and I've concluded this. The song that I have, when I croak instead of warble, the song that I have, God has given to me, and I should use it for His cause and in His service. I should take what He's given me, though it's not what I wanted. And as I've said before, in heaven I hope to sing like a powerful baritone. I've, I've talked to the Lord about this. I have no assurance yet, but that's my, my hope. I wish I had that here. I speak, and as you know, I teach regularly. And guys, you know, I don't have to tell you. Actually, my voice is doing pretty well this morning. I hack and cough through most of the teachings I do. Because I've got a nasal voice to start with, and then I get phlegm on my vocal cords all the time. You know, and I'm thinking, Lord, why couldn't my voice sound like uh, James Earl Jones, for instance? Or, or Ravi Zacharias, you know, the Indian accent that everybody loves to listen to. You know, why can't my voice sound like that? Why do I have to have the the Midwest nasal twang to start and then hack and cough my way through almost all my teachings? But again, I've concluded this, that the voice I have is the voice God gave me, and I am responsible to use it in His cause for His sake. Sometimes, too, I'll listen to other teachers on the radio or in conferences and they, they use great rhetoric. Ravi Zacharias is one of these. You know, these guys, they're just, when you hear them, they are so stinking impressive. And I think, Lord, why, why can't I teach like that? You know, but I've realized as time goes on, you've got to be what you are, not what someone else is, you know. My teaching style, it's pretty low-key. It's pretty matter-of-fact. That's what I've got to give because that's what I've been given. But that's the bottom line. I'm not what I wanted to be. I don't have the gifts or the talents. They don't look the way I would have asked for. But at the end of the day, I've got to say this. I'm responsible to use what God has given me. And excuses will not do. This is what I've been given. This is what I'm responsible to use. In grade school, I was the tallest, fastest kid in school all my life. And I get to Hayden High School. I'm one of the tallest, fastest kids in high school. I'm one of the fastest kids in the state of Kansas in my senior year in the high hurdles. I go to Kansas State on a track scholarship. And I kid you not, the first day I get to the athletic dormitory and I check in, I realize I'm not tall, I'm not fast, and I'm not strong. I'm short next to the basketball players, I'm weak next to the football players, and I am slow next to the sprinters from around the the country who are my teammates. I'm none of those. And you know, now as I age a little bit, you know, I look at guys my age or close, you know, Stanley, for instance, guys with the buff bods, you know, the, the flat... The six-pack tummies, you know, which I do not have. 
I don't have the physique of my youth. But again, I conclude this at the end of the day, either then or now, what I have, my body, the strength that I have or I don't have, whatever I've got, I owe to God in His service, for His cause, for His honor, whatever I think of it. What I have, God's given me, and I owe it to Him to use it for His service. I have been tempted at various times, sometimes because of fatigue, sometimes because of just this very reason, to think, Lord, I would like a one-job life. I'd like to leave the church. I'd like to just run my business. Or I'd like to quit my business and just serve the church. I'd like to be done with life as I know it. And the truth is, when I get these temptations and I kind of languish emotionally in these, these times, the deal is this. My sight rises no higher than myself and my preferences. It's a form of a pity party. And I become the craven in Sill's poem. I'm just looking at myself, what I don't have. And the life that I want, but I don't have. And so I say, you know, I'd kind of like to slink away here along the edge and just go take care of myself for a while. Live life as I want it for a while. And my concern for us as Christians is that's often where we're at. We're slinking along away from the battle because we've decided what we are, what we have, isn't good enough, either in our minds or in others. Let me give you a couple biblical examples of this, and this is two sides of the same coin. We'll start in the Old Testament. Examples of people God used who were, at some significant level, unlikely candidates for God's use. The first one is Moses in Exodus 3. You can turn there if you want. We'll skip through a number of the verses here, 3 and 4 actually. Uh, People say God has a sense of humor. You don't see what I would consider generally outright humor in the Scriptures. Primarily what you see is irony. And this passage is filled with it. So it's funny in that sense at least. But you remember Moses, he was raised in Pharaoh's household in Egypt. So he's an up-and-comer in the most powerful nation on the earth in his day. And he's in the king's palace. And then he thinks that God's called him to leadership. So he kills an Egyptian... And then has to run from Egypt for his life. He's lost his sense of who he was and how God was going to use him. And he becomes a shepherd out there in the hinterlands, middle of nowhere. But he's got a wife and a family. And he's kind of content. Life didn't turn out the way he thought it would, but it's okay. And then one day God appears to him in that bush that burns but isn't consumed. And God says this to Mo. Mo, you're my man. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, we know the story, so we know Moses is God's man and God's prepared him for it. But Moses doesn't know that. So, Moses, at this point, he's the craven on the edge of the battle. He's got five reasons why God should not use him for his plan. The first one is this, verse 11. Moses says to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Lord, you don't understand. I'm just a nobody. I'm Joe Blow out in the desert here with the sheep. Who am I that you would pick me to go do this huge job? Remember, you're talking about going to the most powerful nation on earth, facing the most powerful man on earth, with the most powerful army on earth to take some people away that they don't want to let go. And Mo says, I'm I'm a nobody. You should go find somebody and send them. God says, but Moses, I will be with you. 
So Moses, it doesn't matter if you're a somebody or a nobody because I'll be with you. So don't worry about that. So he covers the first excuse. The next one is in verse 13. Moses says, well, okay, I'm going to the sons of Israel. I'll say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. But maybe they'll say to me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? In other words, Lord, I'll go down there. They're not going to believe me. And I don't even know your name. So don't send me because I don't even know who you are. So God says again, hey, not a problem, Mo. I am who I am. That's where we get the name Yahweh. I am who I am. So Moses, when they ask you who sent you, you say, I am sent you. Not a problem. You're my man. Go on down and tell them who sent you. Excuse number three. Verse uh, one in chapter four. What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? They may say the Lord has not really appeared to you. Okay, Lord, so I go down. I say, I am sent me. And they say, no, he didn't. And we don't believe you. Lord says, hey, no problem. What's in your hand? And he said, a staff. You remember, Moses is a shepherd. So he's got a shepherd staff. It's a stick. Maybe it has a crook in it. Maybe it doesn't. But it's a stick, a shepherd's stick he's got in his hand. So God says, you know the story. Throw the stick on the ground. It becomes a serpent. He's scared. God says, pick it up by the tail. It becomes a staff again. So God says, if they don't believe you, perform this trick, this miracle, and they'll believe you. And if they don't, I'll give you a couple more, which he, he mentions. So not a problem, Moses. Excuse 4, verse 10. Well, Lord, you see, I've never been eloquent. I don't speak well. Um, I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Lord, I'm not a great speaker. Maybe Moses hacked and coughed. Maybe he had a lisp. I don't know. But Moses says, Lord, you really don't want me because I just don't speak that well. I'm unimpressive when I get up and talk. People are not going to want to listen to me. So God says, hey, not a problem. Who made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf, seen blind? Isn't I the Lord? Go and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. Again, God says, Moses, not a problem. You don't have to be a great speaker because I'll be with you and I'll give you the words to say, not a problem, you're my man. And then last, and this is the bottom line after all. Those others, those are just ruses. This is the bottom line. Verse 13, but he said, please, Lord, now, Send whoever you will. Do you know what that means? Send anybody but me. Lord, send anyone you like, as long as it's not me. I'm not your man. For all these reasons, I'm not your man. And then God appoints Aaron to go with him. So Moses considered himself a no-account per- person representing a nameless God, without power, unable to speak well, who would really rather do anything other than be a leader who would bring Israel out of Egypt. That's how he sees himself. I'm not the right man. I have none of the qualifications you're really looking at. Now think of this, the irony here. The man who speaks poorly and lacks eloquence will be the voice of God on the earth. The guy who is not eloquent, he will be God's voice on the earth. Because God will speak his words through Moses. And Moses speaks and he writes the first five books of the Bible. That's pretty ironic. The guy who can't speak becomes God's voice. Or think of this. You know the phrase, don't bring a knife to a gunfight? Uh, Moses is going into Egypt and they've got the most powerful army on the earth. And what does Moses bring with him? A stick. This is supposed to be funny. He brings a stick. This is his impressive symbol. 
You know, he could have had a spear or a magic sword or, a, you know. But his impressive sign is a stick. As he confronts Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies, he's going to bring a stick, a knife, as it were, to the gunfight. This is hilarious. See, but the deal at the end of the day is it's God choosing the person he, cho- he chooses to use for his purposes. And that's the bottom line. In this, Moses is like the coward in Sill's poem. He just wants to avoid the fight in the first place. God says, no, you're my man. And it's more important who I am than who you are. And it's more important what I bring to the fight than what you bring to the fight. Sometimes God does use the talented and the gifted, the powerful, the successful. Sometimes he does. But guys, that is the rare exception. Normally, he uses the lowly and the less gifted and the less talented and the less successful. And he does that because he wants everyone to know that the power or the effect of what's being done isn't human. It's spiritual and it's from God. Now, if you go to the other side of the coin on this, go to Paul in the New Testament. This may not sound like uh, an apt example, but think of this. We know on one hand that Paul's brilliant, right? He's smart. He's a PhD in his day. He's very smart. But when Paul says, when he describes himself about how other people see him, he says this, 2 Corinthians 10.10. They say this about Paul. Paul's quoting his detractors. His letters are weighty and strong. He's smart, and when he writes, he writes well. But his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Maybe Paul had a lisp. Paul had a face for radio and a voice made for sign language. This is kind of the thought. He's unimpressive. So if you just read his letters, you're okay. But if you saw him, you'd think, man, he's, he's not so great. And, you know, some people speculate based on a couple different verses. Might have had an eye condition that would have made him look grotesque or gruesome. And his voice, you know, you hear him speak and it's like, that's him. That's Paul the Great. You know, no way. But Paul becomes God's spokesman, doesn't he? And think of this, in the Roman world, the the most powerful empire on the earth in Paul's day, Paul becomes God's spokesman. And in the midst of opposition and imprisonment and eventual martyrdom, It's Paul that spreads the gospel through the Roman world in his day. He lays the foundation for the church, which has been built on ever since. That's Paul. The difference, I think, between the two is this. Like the king's son in the poem, Paul has a vision greater than himself. Now, Moses sort of saw God in the burning bush. Paul, when you think of the road to Damascus, Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appears to him and he sees Jesus glorified. Or then he tells us later in 2 Corinthians that on another occasion, he says he's not sure if he was in the body or if he wasn't, but he went to heaven and he saw God in heaven. He says he saw things so glorious he can't even tell you about them. Now, whether it was for that reason or others, I'm not sure, but this is the deal. Paul was consumed by a passion for someone greater than himself, for Christ and for God. And so for Paul, it didn't matter if he was physically unimpressive or if his voice was nasally or twangy or whatever. This is the difference. He had decided 
Christ is so worthy. God is so glorious that anything and everything I have, I need to lay down before him in worship and in service. And this is what I'm offering this morning to us. If we can get a vision of God and Christ as he is, if we see him as the worthy person he is, as the powerful creator that he is, our right response should be to fall down and to offer him everything we are and have. And by the way, Paul, Paul exo- uh, encourages and exhorts us to do this in Romans 12.1 when he's given all this great theology in his magnum opus, Romans 1 through 11 at chapter 12, when he starts to give application, he says, guys, based on all this, who God is, what he's done for you, this is what you should do. You should see yourself as an offering placed on the altar. You know, if you took something to God and you put it on the altar, it was all God's. That animal carcass that was burned up, it all belonged to God. Well, that's the mentality Paul has for himself. He says, God, basically, whatever I am is yours. Whoever I am is yours. In my strength or in my weakness, in my success or my failures, I'm yours and everything I do, I do for you. If we have that kind of mind, that kind of passion, that kind of vision, then we'll be like Paul instead of Moses. We'll be like the king's son and not the coward on the edge of the battle. We'll be engaged in the fight instead of slinking away because our lives will be driven by a passion greater than ourselves, Christ, the the greatest vision, the greatest passion, the greatest motivation anyone can or should have in life. Back to English for a minute. Uh, John Milton, a British writer, less known today perhaps than he has been in times past. Milton lived from 1608 to 1684. Uh, Depending on who you talk to and what time period you would have taken opinions, Milton was considered a greater writer than Shakespeare. In Milton's day, if you know of John Milton today, it's for a couple things that I'll mention uh, in a minute. But in Milton's day, up through about the middle point of his life, Milton was known less for poetry than for the tracts, the booklets that he wrote about theology, history, and government or politics. And it was Milton who was commissioned by the government of Oliver Cromwell to write a defense of why it was okay for the British people to kick out the king and have basically a republican form of government to some degree under Oliver Cromwell. And Milton was one bright bulb. Uh, He had studied, he'd gone to the university, I want to say Christ College, he was a bright bulb in school, but after that he took six years to educate himself full time. He spoke eight eight languages. He was a master in education, philosophy, theology. He was kind of a Renaissance man of his day and in his backyard in England. So if you were going to interact in Europe during his life on politics, you had to deal with Milton's arguments. He was that important. But you know, I'll bet few of us, if any here, have read his apologies for the British government in his day. And that if you know Milton today, it's not for any of this early work he did. In 1654, when he was 46 years old, Milton went blind. This is a guy who reads and writes, and he goes blind. Now, we would understand, he was probably self-support, I don't think he had to work at this point. If he kind of sat on his laurels at this point, twiddled away the rest of his life in some corner of England, that would probably be okay. 
because he can't read anymore and he can't write. But you know, it was during Milton's period of blindness, he didn't write, he dictated Paradise Lost and Paradise Restored. And if you know John Milton today, it's probably because you've heard or read Paradise Lost. And it's his poetic retelling, basically, of Satan and Adam and Eve, the temptation in the garden, and their fall, and then Paradise Regained, the opposite end of the story. But this was written during Milton's blindness, not during his sight. Psalm 74, 16 says of God, Yours is the day, yours also is the night. And Milton gave God his service both in the days of his sight and in the nighttime of his blindness. And in fact, if you read his most famous sonnet, Sonnet on His Blindness, he basically says two things. One, I owe God my night as well as my day. God requires my nighttime, my blindness, as well as my sight, the daytime of my life. And even if all I do in God's service is stand and wait, I'm still honoring God. I'm still serving His purposes. Even if all I do, even if all I bring to the table is to stand and wait. I love that attitude. He gave God both His daylight hours and His night. I'm wondering for us if we at all share that same viewpoint. You know, we live in a fairly cushy world, most of us, even, even during periods of, of trial and struggle. You know, just read about what it's like for other people around the world, and you realize we've got a cushy, pampered lifestyle in the United States. And I think probably for that reason we tend to minimize the degree to which God calls us sometimes to discomfort or to work outside our comfort zones or what we think we'd like to do because all of life is, a, is one endless option after another, that God really wants us involved in some things, whether we want to be involved or not, or whether or not we think we're bringing enough to the plate or not. Listen to what the encyclopedia says of Edward Sill, the poet that wrote Opportunity. He was a modest and charming man, a graceful essayist, a sure critic, His contribution to American poetry is small, but of fine quality. His best poems, such as The Fool's Prayer and Opportunity, gave him a high place among the minor poets of America, which might have been higher, but for his early death. And what strikes me is this. The phrases, his contribution to American poetry is small. Or, it gave him a high place among the minor poets prophets. I'm wondering, if Sill knew what, that this would be his epitaph, I'm a major among the minors, I've had a small contribution, if he knew that, and he only lived to be 45, would he have chosen to be the king's son and pick up the blunt swords? Or would he have chosen to be the coward and say, you know, they don't esteem me highly, I'll, I'll just go off in a corner and live out the rest of my life. I don't know. I don't know if he knew how short his life would be. But that's the challenge for me. I'm thinking, are we choosing to be cravens and cowards? Are we choosing to respond to God's call on our life like Moses did initially? Or are we like Paul, in which we have this vision of God and of Christ great enough to say, you're worthy of everything I have, whether I think it's weak or not, if you want it, 
It's yours, God, and I give it to you. I don't know what this looks like for each of us. If you say, what does it look like to give God my night as well as my day? Or what does it look like to not be the coward on the edge of the battle slinking away, but to be the king's son engaged because he has a vision greater than himself? I'm not sure what that looks like. But you can ask yourself things like this. What has God called me to? God, God's work always is initiated by God. God calls us. He called Moses. He called Paul. He has callings on your life and mine. And, and by that I mean he's the initiator. You don't have to scratch your head and look around and say, God, there must be something for, you, for me to do. God will show you what he wants you to do. And if he hasn't, ask him to. Because God initiates anything done in his kingdom, he initiates or it's not from him. So what is God's call on your life? Part of this requires just objective look at how God's made you, what your spiritual gifts are, where he's put you, how he's wired you. What are those things? And out of that, God has probably already prepared people and places and times and events that he means to use you. And guys, this is something too. You can count on God asking you to do things that are outside your comfort zone. It's not if he will, it's when he will. Because at the end of the day, he wants you to know and he wants the world to know that at the end of the day, it's not your greatness and it's not my greatness and it's not our power that's accomplishing God's work on the earth anyway. We are the instruments. We are the reeds through which he blows. We are the instruments that he picks up and uses. But he says in 2 Corinthians, he does it this way because the surpassing power will be displayed as of him. We're just those cracked clay pots. We contain something great. But it's not that we are inherently great in ourselves. That's the way God wants it. That it's his glory revealed through us. So don't think, God's going to let you, he's going to say, here, do things that are all within your comfort zone. It will not happen that way. God will call you and he'll challenge you to things that you think you cannot do or you don't want to do, either because you think you're not up to the task or in other occasions you'll think other people will think I'm not up to the task. And it doesn't matter either way whose opinion you look at. What has God called you to? And are you embracing a vision of life that's greater than yourself, a vision of life that's adequate to motivate you to do all the things God has for you and wants you to do? Last example from the Scriptures. Do you remember the parable of the talents in which the king gives three different parties, three different sums of money, uh, greatest to least? And when he comes back, the one given the least, we assume because he was probably the least gifted, as far as an investor or a steward in the king's house, given the least, the king rebukes him because he's done the one thing he shouldn't have done. He did nothing. This implies that to the king it would have been better if this steward had invested his money and lost money. That would have been better than doing nothing. He did the worst thing he could have done, nothing. And guys, I just think the church, we are sitting in our hands doing nothing more often than not. And God wants us in the battle and in the race and in the fight. 
Are you and I bearing the gifts and talents God has given us? Are we shunning the call He has on our life because we don't think they measure up to someone else's standards or to our own standards? Close with these two. The smallest, lowliest thing becomes great when used in a great cause. And you and I, with all our faults and failings, with all our deficiencies and weaknesses, must bring all that we are and have into the service of Christ, not because we are so great or our talents are so mighty, but because He is. God, save us from being cowards. Save us from ourselves when we want to throw our blunt swords down and slink away from the battle. God, with Paul, give us a vision of Christ that is big enough and true enough to who you are that with Paul we know that the only thing we can do is throw ourselves at your feet and offer ourselves to you for whatever purpose you want. Father, help us to leave small, mean, lowly visions of life Help us to see you and know you as you are. Help us to make it our determination to, as Paul said in Philippians 3, to know you and the power of your resurrection. Lord, to forget the things that lay behind us and to press forward to those things before, to the upward call of God in Christ. Lord, help us to act like what we are Kings, sons, and daughters, Lord, nothing less than that. Help us to put all that we are and have at your disposal as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen.